Good morning and welcome again to In-Town Presbyterian Church. It's great to be in worship with you. If you are new here, if you're visiting with us, we've been going through a study on the book of Colossians, 10 weeks, and uh, each week we've been looking at the issue of Christ being the center of the Christian faith. And what would it look like as an individual? What would it look like as a church if we understood Jesus at the center of all things? What would it look like? How would it change your investigation of the Christian faith if you're here looking in from the outside? As you see Jesus exposited through this, this passage, through this book, that he is at the center of the Christian faith. How would that change our questions? How would that change our Uh, the scope of our quest. Well, we're going to look at that again this morning in Colossians chapter 1, 24 through 29. This is our New Testament reading. You can follow along in your bulletin with me. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you and fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we need to hear from you. We believe that we have assembled here, wherever we're coming from this morning, not by accident, but by your will, by your design. Father, I pray that through this passage, you would more and more draw us to see Christ at the center of our lives, at the center of this church, in fact, at the center of the whole world. Lord, let us be engaged with what you are doing, your reconciling work. Let us be joined to that. Father, we are uh, worried, probably anxious as we look at this passage, that it's drawing us to suffering, to affliction. Many of us already have so much of that in our lives, and we can't imagine how we could be called to greater suffering, to greater affliction. Father, help us to see how Jesus first suffers for us. First, he is afflicted on our behalf before he asks us to suffer on behalf of others. Lord, let that be at the center. Jesus, would you and your suffering, your resurrection, be at the center of our story, at the center of our lives? And hopefully at the center of this sermon. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, think with me for a minute what's happened in this church. It's hard to go back 2,000 years and imagine what it would be like to read this letter for the first time, how these words would be heard in the hearers' minds. They had been told these astounding happenings probably no more than 30 years previous to this letter that Jesus, this carpenter, this religious rabbi, claimed to be God in the flesh. And beyond that, he was executed. He was a religious teacher executed by the religious establishment in partnership with this great power of the Roman Empire. And then Epaphras comes to town, one of Paul's colleagues, and says, Colossians, 
I would like you to believe that this guy, this Nazarene, 30 years ago was crucified, but he rose from the dead. And I would like you to place your faith and hope in him alone as the king of an entire new world. What would you say to that? I know what I would say. I would say, yeah, right. There's no way I'm believing that. There's no way I'm putting my prosperity, my life, my family's life at jeopardy for in jeopardy for believing this story. Wouldn't they say, Epaphras, you want us to deny all of the gods that we have served. You want us to be considered heretics by the Jewish establishment. And for good measure, align ourselves with a religious teacher that was executed. Is that what you're asking us to believe, Epaphras? And he would say, yes. Paul would say, yes. Why? Because the mystery that is kept hidden for ages and ages has been revealed. That the end for which the whole world was created has now been disclosed and is proclaimed in the person of Jesus. So yes, give up everything. Turn and follow Jesus alone. We're going to look briefly at three things, three things that would change if you really believe that. It would change your manner or your posture, what kind of person you are, the manner. And we're going to look at the mystery that is revealed and then the mission. And we had a fairly busy liturgy, so I'm going to try and keep this relatively short. So three short first points. First of all, manner. He says, now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you. I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me. Now, we should keep in mind here that they don't know Paul. They haven't met him. They just know his colleague, and they've heard of Paul just by virtue of his friend. And he, through Epaphras, is calling them to this incredibly challenging life, these extraordinary measurings, measures of suffering on behalf of the gospel, of taking on affliction on yourself on behalf of other people. They don't know him personally, and so he gives them an introduction. He gives them his CV, if you will. He gives them his resume. And what does it consist of? He says, Colossians, I am your servant. I am the one suffering for you. His resume is not that simply he is an apostle appointed by God himself, although he does mention that. The reason he wants the Colossians to listen to them, the rationale is that he is willing to suffer on their behalf, though he doesn't even know them. He hasn't met them. Now, in addition to this, he's writing from jail, most likely, and he's been, in other letters, we read that he's been whipped He's been beaten with rods. He's been shipwrecked. Though once he was a part of the relig religious establishment, probably even wealthy, he's now constantly on the move, he says. He's been pelted with stones. He's slept in the cold. He's gone hungry for the Colossians, for the Corinthians, for all of these churches. He is saying, I am willing to suffer for you because the cause of the gospel is so great. Because Jesus has gotten a hold of me. Because Jesus is my center, I'm willing to suffer for you. 
says, I've been commissioned by God. I'm an apostle. So he has every right to command them, to pull rank on them, but that's not what he does. He mentions his apostleship. He mentions his commission. But more importantly, he says, I am willing to suffer me, suffer for you. Trust me because I suffer for you. I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regards to Christ's affliction. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled over this passage particularly, this little sentence, because it's very difficult to understand what he's talking about. Is he saying that there was something uh, negligent in what Christ did? Is there something necessary that Christ should have been able to fulfill that now Paul has to fulfill by his work? You can't read the rest of the letter and conclude that. You can't read the rest of the Bible and conclude that. And in fact, afflictions, that term is never used synonymously with atonement. That is the work of Jesus, his payment for sin. That those two things are never synonymous. So we shouldn't read when he says, I fill up in my flesh the afflictions of Christ, that he is in some way making the atonement perfected. One way I can help you understand this is by revisiting a 1985 John Hughes film, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. One of my favorite movies when I was in, uh, a teenager, watched it just all the time in the summer. We thought it was so cool that this guy would be able to take this Ferrari downtown Chicago and have the greatest time of his life and get away with everything. Ferris, you know, is uh, a very popular high schooler. Everyone loves him. And he convinces his sick, sort of nerdy friend to take his father's 1961 convertible Ferrari, mint condition, out for a a drive into the city and skips school. Now, in the process, it's temporarily stolen, and these guys drive it all over the city and put 100 or so more miles on the odometer. And Cameron's dad knows exactly to the tenth of a mile how many miles are on the Ferrari, so they're done for because it's 100 or so more. And in the process of taking it back, they get the car back, and they take it back to Cameron's house, and they put it on a jack, and think that putting in reverse and driving real fast, that it will take the miles off. And of course it doesn't. And Cameron gets mad and he kicks the car. And what happens? This $350,000 Ferrari goes right out the back window of the third floor of their house, destroyed. So Ferris offers to take the blame. He says, I was the one that made this decision, so I should take the blame. Your dad hates me anyway, so what's the difference? But Cameron won't have any of, it, any of it. He says, I will take the heat. I will take the burden for you. We just destroyed a Ferrari. There's plenty of blame to go around to both of us. But he says, I'm going to draw the enemy's fire. I'm going to be the one that absorbs the heat so that you can go free, so that you can suffer less. Paul is saying that he is willing to draw the enemy fire. If he can suffer, and it means alleviating the suffering on behalf of the Colossians, that because of the cause of the gospel, he is willing to do it. If he can be the figurehead of Christianity and be safely jailed according to the Roman Empire, if he can somehow draw the enemy fire, draw the attention away from this little fledgling church that's being attacked from the outside by false teaching, if he can suffer and it means the Colossians have to suffer less, then he will do it. If suffering is the manner in which the message goes out, 
then he will do it. He's not saying that his suffering is a necessary addition to Jesus' suffering, but it's an extension of it. It's an extension of the fact that he has been united to Christ, the fact that he has received the task of the gospel, that he will suffer. It is necessary for him to suffer, but it's not a necessary addition to Jesus' own suffering. The manner, the posture of one who understands this message, who is joined to Christ, is a willingness to suffer on others' behalf. The manner in which this mystery goes out is by suffering, by willingly taking on afflictions that would be otherwise directed at someone else. Now, that's staggering, but let's look for a minute at why. Why would we be willing to do that? Why would we be willing to entertain that idea? It's because of the mystery that's been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, the plot hinges upon this mystery map, this chart that someone they are, they are all trying to find. The people in the story know that if they can find the map and follow the map and understand the map, then it would lead them to buried treasure, perhaps wealth beyond their imagination. But it's been hidden for many years. Some people think the map is imaginary. Others think that the hero isn't reading the map rightly. There's doubt. There's danger. There is difficulty in this pursuit of treasure, in finding this mysterious map. Now, Paul here is speaking of a plan that has some secret element to it, a plan that's been hidden like a map that's rested in some dusty cupboard or a lost city for many years that now Paul has been made aware of. It's a mystery that has some secret element that Jesus, that God has revealed specifically to Paul. And this plan, this secret plan, has come to fruition in the person of Jesus not just new information, not just a solution to a puzzle, but glorious riches have been revealed. Now, there's some level of debate in this passage as well, in this little sentence about what is the mystery, and the Greek is not entirely clear. In Ephesians, it's more clear that Paul is using mystery in regards to God uh, reconciling the whole world through Jesus, that everything that he had been working through the nation of Israel, the call of Abraham, the law of Moses, the kingship of David, the prophets, that all of that was one continuous work leading to Jesus and this expansion, this explosion of who's included in the gospel story, that it's not just Israel as the conduit of God's promises any longer, but it's the whole world. It's Gentile too, that the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been torn down forevermore, and the gospel equalizes everyone. Everyone stands before God on the same basis, and that's the mystery that he seems to be alluding to and talking about in Ephesians, and certainly that's included here. He mentions the Gentiles specifically, but there's something else. There's something more about God, what, is God, what God is disclosing and making known. It's that the glorious riches is Christ in you. It is the hope of glory. 
Christ in you. This is what, how Paul talks about union with Christ throughout the epistles when he says the Christ in the church, Christ in you. Theologians have termed this union with Christ. Now, what does he mean by this? Why is this such a glorious mystery? Well, this is really the beautiful uniqueness of Christianity, that not only does God become incarnate, that he walks around among sinful people, but he offers you his status. He offers you his life. He offers you everything that he lived and died and was resurrected for can become yours, that you can be united with him eternally. This is the uniqueness, the the way that Christianity is different from all other approachables, uh, uh, all other religions, that God who exists in glory, who is unapproachable because of his holiness, has approached us in Jesus. That you don't go up to him, that he comes down to you. That it's not what you do to get to God, it's what he has done to get to you. That he has given you what you could never acquire on your own, his status, holiness, righteousness, that he grants that to you, that he in fact grafts it onto you, that he lives in you. He binds himself to you and what he is, you have received eternally. That's union with Christ. That's the hope of glory. That's the great mystery is that Christ has come to be in you, to make you worthy. John Murray, who is a Scottish theologian, says union with Christ, or was a Scottish theologian, union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. There is no truth, therefore, more suited to impart confidence and strength, comfort and joy in the Lord than this one of union with Christ. Glorious riches, Christ in you, you are safe in Jesus. Anything that anyone would have against you, including God himself, you are safe from in Jesus. When God looks at you, if you are in Christ, he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus' work, his life, death, resurrection, and therefore you are safe. That is the hope of eternal glory that Jesus shares with you, even his glory. This is staggering, but also very sobering, because in the same way that Christians are united to his glory, they're also united to his suffering, to his life, to his mission, to his, ministry, his, ma- his mission. He is the one we proclaim, verse 28, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. In Steven Spielberg's 1988 World War II flick, Saving Private Ryan, eight GIs go on a search for one private. This private has lost three brothers, and so the War Department decides that he is worth it to send eight guys on a mission to try and find him, rescue him, and get him home before he's killed and the mother loses all four of her children. Now, one of the most talked about scenes is at the end where Captain Miller, 
the one that's played by Tom Hanks. He's an army ranger, and he's shot, and he's dying. And all but, I think, one of those GIs has died in the process of finding and saving, rescuing Private Ryan. And he says, as he's gurgling and can barely talk, after this whole ordeal, he tells Private Ryan, earn this. And it haunts Private Ryan for the rest of his life. And at the very end of the movie, you see him stumbling and crying because have I been a good enough man? Have I earned that sacrifice of those seven people? How is that even possible? What could you possibly do in your life to earn the sacrifice of seven young men? Now, I read something from an actual army ranger, and he says that a ranger would never say what Captain Miller said. The ranger motto is sua sponte, which means of their own accord. Or to paraphrase, I chose this. I chose this for you. The gospel is not Jesus on the cross saying, earn this, but it's Jesus saying, I chose this for you and for the whole world. I chose to suffer so that you could be free. I chose to die so that you could live. I chose this. It's my honor to give my life for you. It's exactly what Paul says at the very beginning of our passage, Colossians. I chose this for you. I rejoice in my sufferings and that it alleviates your sufferings. I chose this because I live out of, my, out of this center of my life being Jesus' suffering on my behalf. Paul understood the cross. He understood the gospel. He understood that he was not working off a debt to God, but that he had received, not out of his own working, the glorious riches of Christ, free of charge. And this is what he proclaims. The mission of one who understands the mystery of the gospel is proclaiming him through service to others. It is proclamation of word and deed. The glorious riches are found in Jesus. Eugene Peterson, in the front of your bulletin, I quoted him to say, the Christian is a person who recognizes that our real problem is not in achieving freedom, but it is learning service under a better master. A servant Christian is the freest person on the earth. Jesus is the one who offers you freedom freedom through service, because he serves you. He is the one the church proclaims, his promises, his work, his mystery. The mystery is that though you deserve death and separation from God, you got life and riches and glory. He pursues you through the war zone that is our world. And then as he dies, he doesn't say, earn this, but I chose this for you. Christian, if you are here understanding this, if you get that Jesus pursued you through the war zone, would it not then compel you to do the same? Not so that you can earn anything, but because you have everything, because you have glorious riches, would it not compel us to then extend those glorious riches to someone else, to suffer on their behalf? Is there someone in your family, in your community group, in your neighborhood? Is there someone in our city that you can say, I choose to suffer so that they don't have to? I choose to take burdens onto myself. I choose to give up something in order that they can have something. Because look what Jesus has done 
for me. And if you're here looking in from the outside, not really sure, not really sure if you can call yourself a Christian yet, what would it be like to come to that kind of Savior, that kind of God, who doesn't make demands first but offers blessing first? He says, I will give you everything. Now serve out of gratitude, not to earn it. What would it be like to come and give your life to that type of God? Let's pray. Father, we pray that all of these difficult little passages and phrases would become clear to us that at the center of this story, at the center of this passage is Jesus and his work. I pray that we would celebrate that. I pray that you would knit it into our hearts. I pray that you would tie it to this church more directly, more fully and firmly as we come now to the table. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.